The Culture and Animals Foundation. Think. Create. Explore. Celebrate. In 2014, I visited my first slaughterhouse, a chicken abattoir in Vancouver, Canada. There was one other activist there that day, a woman called Mary Chris Staples, from the grassroots group Vancouver Chicken Safe. She met me, standing at a busy intersection, wearing a placard around her neck, which depicted to passing commuters what was going on in the nondescript grey building hidden behind a row of low trees. I'd never done activism before, never put myself in that vulnerable position of being looked at and thought of as an activist. I was afraid, ashamed even, and then I saw the chickens. They were packed into blue plastic crates as a forklift truck ferried them from one part of the facility to another. The forklift placed them on a conveyor belt and tipped them out beyond our sight. I was shocked by the scale of it all. The thousands of ill and confused looking animals kept in these industrial bird cages. Nothing more than raw material for a meat factory. The smell, the blood, the sawdust, the clatter of the machines. I still feel numb about it today. I didn't, and in many ways still don't, know what to do about this mass murder of so many gentle living beings. Yet that numbness stirred in me what author and activist Jim Mason, in episode 5, called an emotional revolution. One he'd felt when he and Peter Singer visited slaughterhouses in New York and Connecticut in the 1970s. As with them, the experience changed my life. For this final episode of Martin's Act 200, it's good to remember that it was farmed animals that Richard Martin MP was trying to protect. Not from outright slaughter, admittedly, and not, to be precise, chickens, but the cows and other cattle that Martin saw being subject to unnecessary abuse on the way to slaughter. Unnecessary. Keep that word in mind. 200 years later, animal activists are still witnessing cruelty, still trying to protect animals from the worst abuses, and many of us are still trying to stop them from becoming food. In spite of those efforts, today, animals are being killed for food in numbers greater than ever. Between 56 and 80 billion land animals a year, most of those chickens. Which means that, after 200 years, as activists, advocates, authors, artists, academics, animal lovers, and anyone working for our non-human kin, we have to confront the question. Just how badly have we failed them? It's important to remember it because it was the first piece of animal welfare legislation. Protests, campaigns, petitions, they've all got a place, but there are far too few legal challenges. A legal system dominated by people who believe that anthropocentrism is right, that it is proper to value humans over animals. His compassion for others was, was universal. Now, I recognise that asking how badly we failed animals is a loaded question. We activists fail animals all the time, and yet many of us continue to do our best, and doing one's best is not failure. But while I stand by that question as being useful, I recognise it may also be the wrong one. Asking better questions in regard to animals leads to better answers, 
as the philosopher Vincian Despret has taught us. So in this final episode, I reflect on the journey from Martin's act in 1822 to today and ask what I hope are some better questions. What have we learnt? What have we missed? What gaps remain in our legislation and advocacy? And where might the future be leading us? Let's begin with what we've learnt. Toronto Pig Save has been holding vigils three times a week since 2011. And a couple of years into it, we started giving water to pigs and uh, it wasn't an issue. That's Anita Krantz, founder of the Save Movement, of which Vancouver Chicken Save was a chapter. At the heart of the Save Movement's activism is bearing witness, mainly through, as you heard, vigils at slaughterhouses. This witnessing engenders the emotional revolution that Mason talked about and that most likely moved Richard Martin to act too. There's also a legal thread that links Martin's act and the Save Movement. It emerged in what's become known as the Pig Trial because of that act of kindness of giving water to thirsty pigs. Here's Krantz again. In 2015, a truck driver jumped out of the cab and as I was giving water to the pigs, he said, stop giving them water. And uh, I said, no, I, you know, if the pigs are thirsty, I'll give them water. It was a really hot day in June and nothing happened. But in a, a few weeks later, a police officer arrived at my door and said I was charged with criminal mischief, uh, interference with property. And we had recorded the incident uh, on video. We, we had actually posted it before and because it was such a confrontation. Uh, and the pigs were panting at a very high rate. They were really thirsty. And yeah, and so that sort of that led then to a number of pre-trials and then a, a trial that lasted a year and a half. One thing we have learned as activists over the last 200 years since Martin's Act and his first prosecution, where Martin famously brought an abused donkey into court, is that public trials can make an impact on public opinion and the law. When this case happened, the, the idea of charging somebody for the act of mercy of giving water to a thirsty animal, our team and our lawyers right away knew that this was a, something that we needed to get into the courts in a drawn out process. We didn't want it to be dismissed. We wanted to go into the courts and, and fight this. And my, my two vegan lawyers right away were trying to secure a number of witnesses, expert witnesses from different fields, and to turn the tables on animal agriculture and put them on trial. In early 2022, activists from Animal Rebellion in the UK broke into MBR Acres, which breeds dogs for animal experimentation, and rescued five beagles. They did so openly, turned themselves into the police and even handed in evidence. Like the SAVE movement, they aimed to put animal experimentation on trial in the court of public opinion. MBR Acres dropped all charges. I wonder why. So Animal Rebellion went back at the end of the year and liberated another 18 dogs. The farmer who brought charges against Krantz and Toronto Pig Save probably wished he'd dropped all charges too, because it didn't turn out well for him or the animal ag industry in Canada. Let's spend some time thinking about the tactics that Krantz and her legal team used in the pig trial. They fought it on two grounds. First of all, this idea of criminalizing compassion. People give food to uh, houseless people. They're not charged with that for doing that. I mean, it's just an act of mercy. So that was the first. And the second? The, the criminal mischief charge was interference with property, the property being the pigs. So the, the bigger goal, the more important goal for us was to challenge the property status of pigs. And just as the women's movement had 
you know, uh, challenged the property status of women, you know, a century ago. You know, that's that's the big, bigger fight that the animal rights movement has. Another tactic, and one that Richard Martin used, is that court trials allow you to bring in expert witnesses and broaden the argument. So... What surprised me from uh, the lawyer strategy was I didn't expect them to get like a health expert or to make it so broad. Basically, the lawyers said, let's just tell the truth. Like, why are people uh, going and standing at these pig vigils every week? What are all the reasons that they're doing it? And um, and basically, they got witnesses to cover all the arguments. So they got a witness, uh, Dr. Marino, who... Uh, who talked about the sentience of pigs. They, they got uh, a, a veterinarian to talk about their, their suffering. They got a Oxford trained doctor and professor who invented the glycemic index, you know, to talk about the health risks of eating meat and not only talked about that, but talked about the science behind it. They also got Dr. Uh, Tony Weiss to talk about environmental and climate reasons. The prosecution were wrong-footed by the witnesses and the appeals to compassion. The trial also enabled the farmer's other lawsuit, where he was being charged with polluting water, to come to light. Even his daughter joined protesters at one of their vigils. When the judge came to decide, he dismissed the charge of criminal mischief on the grounds that the activist hadn't stopped the pigs being slaughtered. But did the judge then embrace the idea that pigs weren't property? It was a massive disappointment. Um, The judge, I think, missed an opportunity to move the law forward on the rights of non-human animals as persons. And he said, pigs are property. So, if neither the law nor the property status remained unchanged, how was the trial a success? In terms of media coverage, prior to that, we never received so much media coverage for that particular type of activism, which is bearing witness to farmed animals at the front gates of slaughterhouses. You know, through this legal case... The pig trial was able to get footage of pigs, individual pigs in trucks, like never before. So it was it was really advantageous in that sense, you know, so people could actually see pigs as persons. And, and I think what we showed is that the legal system has to catch up with the ethical system. I'll pick up on that point in a moment. But if a not guilty verdict and media coverage are considered successes, does that mean the movement should focus more on such activism? So it really benefited us at that time. It took a lot of our attention and resources at the time that it was happening. So it's not something I would recommend continually, but it certainly plays you know, a role. I think you can't neglect the legal strategy in the animal rights movement, but I don't think it's something you want to be fighting all the time. But Another lesson I've learned from this audio documentary is the value of collaboration and building the right team. Lord Erskine failed to get his legislation through the British Parliament in 1809 without Richard Martin there. And Martin couldn't have succeeded without Erskine's role in the House of Lords in 1822. One area where creative collaboration is benefiting animals today is in a place very much inspired by Richard Martin, the UK Centre for Animal Law, which in 2022 hosted the five-day Martin's Act Bicentenary Conference. The idea actually came from one of our trustees, Mike Radford, and he was really passionate about doing something to recognise Martin's Act. I mean, it's such an important bicentenary 200-year anniversary of the first national animal welfare legislation that had an objective to protect animals rather than animal welfare. That's Paula Sparks, animal lawyer and chairperson of the centre. 
widening the base of the UK Centre for Animal Law has been a policy in success over this last decade. Its precursor organisation was called UK Lawyers for Animal Welfare, but... As we grew, we realised that people who weren't lawyers also wanted to contribute to the debate about how animals could be better protected by law. And we had scientists join and animal welfare campaigners. And we really thought we ought to reflect that in the name, that we were about animal law rather than lawyers who were concerned about animal law. This approach has led to valuable projects to protect animals. I think it's really important that we work collaboratively and that we take uh, an interdisciplinary approach. I've learned so much from my animals science colleagues and I think, you know, in terms of animal welfare, this is one area where you really do have to understand the animal welfare as well as the law. The cross-pollination of ideas and different areas of expertise exhibited by the Centre and 2022's conference echoes the defence's approach at the pig trial It's also critical for that theme that I mentioned earlier, how activists have tried to close the gap between public opinion or social feeling and the law. Sparks gives us an example of dog breeding in the UK. The DEFRA she mentions in the following stands for the UK Government's Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. So when I was growing up, you would walk past a pet shop and there would be puppies in the window Now, the legislation that regulates the breed and sale of animals goes back to the 1950s. And society changed an awful lot over that time. And when the Government Select Committee, DEFRA Select Committee, looked at how the Animal Welfare Act was operating in practice, it came out there were a number of concerns about puppy farming. So that's these very low welfare but high output breeders Uh, the conditions in which those puppies are bred, them being unvaccinated, maybe sold on with parvovirus and in poor health. And that led to a shake-up of the legislation. So the the whole licensing regime was changed. And then uh, reflecting the concern of campaigners such as Mark Abraham, known as Mark Bavette, and others working on the ground, the legislation was further amended called Lucy's Law, to ban the third-party sale of puppies by someone other than a breeder. So that created a further level of protection. Job done? Well, not quite. But the next step is to look at those breeders who perhaps have found the landscape now more hostile and so importing those puppies from abroad and so now what the government has proposed through the kept animals bill which we we don't know if that's going to have enough parliamentary time to get through are restrictions on the age of uh, young dogs can be brought into the united kingdom and whether they can be brought in at what the age of the, the you know the gestational age for a pregnant dog now, there have been some really great, there's some really great campaign work that's been done by the Focus on Animal Law group, who does some really excellent work with uh, the dog behaviourist, Jordan Shelley, that has informed that and has raised awareness. So it's only really by taking stock at each stage, by looking at where the law needs to improve, where there are loopholes in the law and where the law needs to go, that we can actually achieve anything. What's clear here is that collaboration, in this case between lawyers, scientists and campaigners,
but it could also be artists, academics and administrators, is critical for legislation, and perhaps especially in the often incremental steps forward that are needed for laws to change. Thank you to Paula Sparks. We'll come back to some of her points about the gaps in a moment. But I want to bring attention to one more thing I think we've learned from reflecting on Martin's Act and the history of animal protection. That's how hard it is to change the law, and how if change is going to occur, we've got to be less squeamish about taking advantage of the opportunities that arise, such as the COVID-19 pandemic. So as far as we can tell, nobody had challenged factory farm operations at all in any country across the world. That's Jane Tredgett, former RSPCA council member and founder of the UK-based group Scrap Factory Farming, whom we heard from in episode three, and who wanted to challenge factory farming through the legal system. And we started to look at factory farms in particular in the fact that we believe that they breach the Animal Welfare Act. So the Animal Welfare Act talks about animals needing a suitable environment, a suitable diet, being able to exhibit normal behaviour patterns, looking at how it's housed with or apart from other animals, and the need to be protected from pain, suffering, injury and disease. And if you look at factory farms and how they've grown and how many animals are crammed together in really awful, unhygienic conditions, really no opportunity to behave in a normal way whatsoever, we really felt that factory farms in particular were massive problems. And of course, there's all the other links to the environment and human health. But we started looking at it from the suffering of animals on those farms. But this is where collaboration again benefits the cause, because the animal angle was not going to work. And we went out and spoke to quite a number of legal firms to see if we could take a case against the Animal Welfare Act or the breaches, as we saw them again, of the Act. But we were told that because that legislation had been in place for quite a long time, it would be quite difficult to take a direct challenge on it. Why now? Why not before? You know, this has been in place for so long. A new angle was needed. And so we were encouraged by legal firms who felt very strongly that the animal agriculture contribution to the climate crisis was going under the radar. And so we started to develop... Uh, a case centred around the climate crisis, but incorporating the messages of what was happening on the farms as well to the animals. Then another reality intruded. But then as we started to put that case together and the evidence together, we became aware, obviously, of the COVID-19 outbreak, which was impacting each of us. Every one of us has been impacted. So that starts to bring a very powerful awareness of a zoonotic disease, Three out of four emerging diseases are zoonotic, they're coming from animals. And it's zoonotic diseases, especially avian and swine flu, as they're known, that pose significant global health threats to non-human and human populations alike. This was the argument Scrap Factory Farming adopted, challenging the government to ban concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs, to protect human populations and food security, with the added benefit of shifting humanity towards a plant-based future. So, what happened next? So, the best we can do in the UK is push for a judicial review. And a judicial review is putting something under the spotlight to have it examined. So, you've got to fight just to get it examined. 
And, you know, we had to collect an amazing amount of evidence. So we submitted 1,200 pages of evidence, things like the fact that antibiotic resistance is already killing 3,480 people a day, you know, pages on pages of it. And we collected, spoke to, connected with over 80 experts around the world. The power of collaboration again. You'd think then that something as grand-sounding as a judicial review might warrant something as grand as a jury, right? Wrong. Then what happens with that is it goes into a bundle and goes into the court system and one judge, one judge is appointed to looking at that and deciding whether we have a case or not. And you don't even know whether they've got a vested interest. They don't have to declare a vested interest. They don't have to put their background down. So you have no idea. You're completely in the hands of one judge. The UK government also put in a defence without needing any evidence to support their claims. And that one judge then read both submissions and made his decision. You might be able to guess the outcome. So we were turned down initially for a full hearing. We appealed for an oral hearing to put our case forward. We're turned down on that. And then the next stage is putting forward for an appeal, a proper appeal. Has that put Tredgett and her team off the process? Not entirely, but it has left them disenchanted with the legal system as a tool. So it's been a real battle to kind of put it through the court systems and get a fair hearing for what we were putting forward. And I think that's a system that's very, very flawed. Not even Richard Martin would argue with that. Let's remember, Martin tried on multiple occasions to bring about legislation for animals and succeeded only once in 1822. But if he'd given up at the first attempt, we wouldn't have Martin's Act. So, let's keep trying. There are plenty of other elements to reflect on in this history. And one of them, surely, runs like an undercurrent throughout two centuries of animal activism. The major stumbling block to progress is something that I don't understand. I don't understand why people don't care. That's Marianne Sullivan, lecturer in animal law and host of the Animal Law podcast, as well as co-host of the Our Henhouse podcast. What she's expressing here, of course goes beyond the law. But then, what is the law, other than an expression of human wants and needs? Richard Martin, for example, was intuitive about human behaviour and used his knowledge of how to manage other egos, for example, to bring Martin's act into being. So, would our legal campaigning for other animals work better if we better understood the human animal? Or grasped social psychologist Melanie Joy's theory of carnism? The profound psychic investment that human beings make in eating certain animals? I know we have a lot of theories within the movement, like cognitive dissonance and and Melanie Joy's work, which is very powerful, but they don't answer the question for me. I find it perplexing that so many people care about animals and yet don't change their behavior. I obviously don't know a lot about human behavior. Given Sullivan's achievements on behalf of animals, we may beg to differ. But her question remains, have we done enough work to understand why good people don't change? I don't consider myself or you or any of us in the movement to be like these amazing, fabulous people who are so much better than everybody else. There are so many wonderful people out there doing wonderful things, working much harder than I do, devoting themselves to causes. Why they would continue to participate in this nightmare is beyond me. 
I mean, I guess I think the stumbling block is something to do with human nature, but I don't understand what that thing is. Sullivan conceives of a way forward that involves a collaborative effort across creative, academic, campaigning, legal and other spaces. And, thinking about what we heard from Carol Adams in the last episode, such an approach is very much grounded in the values we want to be part of our future. Care, compassion and kindness, often taught to us best through feminism. I do think it's possible that this could change on a dime. I mean, it has something to do with what when I was coming of age was known as consciousness raising. That was when the women's movement was really just starting going. And I, and it was a big phrase, consciousness raising. But you could really see it happen, especially with younger people. One day, all of a sudden, they would completely change their perspective, particularly on women's roles, but, you know, on other things as well. And I think after you completely change your perspective, after you wake up to an injustice and become concerned about it, you actually can't remember what you used to think because it was you weren't thinking about it. You were you were blocking out those thoughts. And I think a lot of people must be blocking out their thoughts because I think most people I know, you know, I, I think everybody in the movement realizes this. People would never do to animals. Most people would never do to animals what is done to them in their name. For that reason, the Canadian pig trial and the judicial review of UK factory farming are valuable. They raise awareness of what is being done to animals in our name and what and whom current laws protect. Of course, raising awareness is not the same as raising consciousness. Perhaps, as Sullivan suggests, we need to look back at the tactics used by the women's movement in the 1970s and ask, are there ways consciousness raising can be translated for animals and work for today's society? Because what we need to do, I think, is make people aware of just how conscious and feeling they already are about not wanting animals to suffer. It's a testimony to an aspect of human moral psychology that there are limits to our ability to overlook the interests of animals. That's Tony Milligan, who we've met before, who's senior researcher in the philosophy of ethics at King's College London and part of the Cosmological Visionaries Project, exploring environmental initiatives of the future. If we see something right in the full square in front of us, a, a, a form of, of animal harm, then, uh, then we worry about that. For Milligan, these limits of what we will consciously accept in terms of the treatment of animals became very apparent as we started sending animals into space. That started very, very quickly with the, the primates that were sent into space, uh, for example, ham. Ham was the first chimpanzee sent into orbital space by the Americans, who'd begun doing that in 1949. This may have inspired Bridget Brophy, who we also met in episode 5, to write her 1953 novel, Hackenfeller's Ape, about, well, sending a chimp into space. And even towards the, the end of Ham's life, very important primate, you get these contentions about who gets the body and what happens to it. So I think for a period of time they wanted to have it stuffed and put on display in the Smithsonian on a par with some of the, the Russian space dogs. They, they did the same thing with that. And there was a bit of a public outcry and they decided that this would be this would be an insensitive thing to do, especially given that space programmes are supposed to be a matter of the best of humanity and they show the, the greatest things that we are capable of. And if we're engaging in some kind of brutality or insensitivity towards other creatures, it cuts across that narrative and it becomes difficult to see this as a great human achievement rather than simply yet another naked display of power. 
That issue of what stories we tell ourselves about who we are as a species is central to our advocacy for other species. But let's look at a few examples of what we've missed that Marianne Sullivan raises. The first one is how the animal exploitation industries have bypassed, circumvented, watered down or changed laws meant to protect animals. For example... There are very few laws applying specifically to farm animals. She's referring here to the US context, but the same applies worldwide. There have been a few in in the past few years, but first I'll talk about cruelty laws. Cruelty laws are the same cruelty laws that apply to dogs and cats. Every state has one, and they apply to farm animals as well. And the the industry frequently announces on their websites that, you know, there are laws in every state protecting animals from cruel treatment. However, in over half the states, There have been exemptions written into those cruelty laws for customary farming practices. And that means that whatever is customary in the industry becomes exempt from the enforcement of the law, which is an outrageous kind of way to write a law because you're just leaving it completely up to an industry to decide what they want to do and how the law should be enforced. As she says, it's outrageous. Why hasn't the animal movement challenged these at every step? Probably because of what Anita Krantz and Jane Tredgett mentioned earlier. It's time-consuming and tiring to try to change an unfair system when there's little hope of success. Which brings me to an issue that Sullivan raises at the end. Enforcement. There's a tendency to look at the law and to say, OK, job done, look at this on paper, it looks as if it's, um, you know, there's a good level of protection here. Paula Sparks. The enforcement of the law takes resources, so there has to be a degree of prioritisation given to that, and it requires a degree of skill as well. Which requires staffing, capacity, and being able to get to where the law may be flouted, which is why the animal movement relies so much on undercover investigation. But there's also a problem with the laws themselves, and the ambiguity that they allow for in the way animals are mistreated. In terms of the animal welfare legislation itself, sometimes the, and I think this is the case with the Animal Welfare Act in the UK, terms such as unnecessary suffering, so animals are protected from unnecessary suffering, those can be quite elastic. So they can be interpreted on the basis of, well, what's unnecessary? Well, is that in accordance with industry practice? So that degree of suffering that's caused, well, it's good. It's necessary. It's necessary for the industry. It's necessary to uh, produce a high output of food or low cost food. It's necessary. So I think that those concepts could, uh, could be addressed. Coming back to the focus of the pig trial, there is one massive, perhaps the biggest issue in law regarding how animals are treated that we should be challenging at every possible step. The categorisation in law of animals as property, and this goes right back to Roman times, um, that animals are property. And in some some countries, I think Spain recently, um, recognise that animals are a special form of property. They're sentient. So we can take into account where there is a dispute about, say, for example, the ownership of an animal and where that animal should be should be housed to take into account the best interests of that animal. A concrete example where the law exists but is not enforced is in the United States. The 28-hour law is actually quite an old law. Marianne Sullivan. 
And it had to do with when cattle were no longer being driven, they were being transported by trains to places of slaughter. You couldn't slaughter them in situ and ship the meat because there wasn't any refrigeration yet. So it became a whole method of shipping cattle, primarily cattle, uh, around the country and to slaughter, I guess, to Chicago. And so they passed laws and they were pretty strict laws. I mean, obviously, 28 hours in transit without a break is a long time. But every 28 hours, the, the animals had to be unloaded, watered, fed and and allowed to to not be put back on the train for five hours. Which sounds a lot to me like the kind of thing that Anita Krantz was trying to do for the thirsty pigs. And there were all across the country where there were freight trains, there were these corrals where animals had to be unloaded. The law was taken seriously. Once transport changed to trucks, the, the, they just completely stopped paying attention to it at all. And the government actually took the position for a while that it didn't apply to trucks. But there's absolutely nothing in the law that says it only applies to trains. It just applies to transport. So at some point, I think pursuant to a, a petition for rulemaking from the Humane Society of the United States, they they acknowledge that it applies to trucks. I think there is a widespread suspicion that it is not enforced anyway. And animals are actually transported very far distances to slaughter, not because there's no refrigeration anymore, but because there are very few slaughterhouses in the country. They're they're situated in you know, rural areas that are hard to reach. So the animals are still transported very long distances. And as far as I know, the 28-hour law is is not enforced. There's certainly no roadside uh, corrals as you drive around the country for places where animals can be unloaded. So either they're making it within 28 hours or they're not. The 28-hour law tells us a lot about the limits of the law as a whole and what the law really thinks about the balance of consideration between farm businesses and the animals that they use for raw materials. So, the question remains, what is the future for laws on behalf of animals? If we don't address our current actions, they will, most certainly, be carried into our future. Make no mistake, even as our civilization on this planet is under threat from climate collapse, people are already thinking about how to mistreat animals in the future. I'll tell you about a working group that I was part of a, a few years ago. Tony Milligan. We were looking at what are known as O'Neill cylinders, and that's these giant habitats out in, in space. Uh, the idea being that the surface of the planet might not be the, the best place to live in space. It might be better to start by constructing habitats from scratch. And more recently, people have thought, well, maybe there's something to this idea. So it was part of this working group looking at building these massive habitats out in space. And one of the things that a number of the people in the group wanted was to have livestock animals. That's right. Pigs in space! Featuring the master of the swine trek, the intrepid and well-fed Link Hogthrob. And his first mate and second in command... Which is just weird, right? For Milligan... Here you have an example of interesting and well-meaning people, but they're finding it enormously difficult to break away from certain kinds of habits and to describe futures that are both viable and, and, and morally defensible. I mean, why, why would you want to, to have, as it were, a repetition of those systems in, in, in space at, at enormous cost and in the face of enormous difficulty when you can have uh, in vitro systems that uh, produce more or less identical products, 
at some point in time they will produce indistinguishable products much, much more efficiently. In vitro meat and cellular agriculture and the legal work surrounding its development is a documentary in itself. And if you've not seen it, watch Liz Marshall's Meet the Future. But what did these conversations with others, everyone thinking about the future, tell Milligan? To me, I drew from that the, the twofold nature of attitudes towards animals in space. On the one hand, widespread recognition that things have got to change and that we cannot do up there exactly what we have done down here. And on the other hand, an extreme reluctance to engage in any real change that would actually prepare us for a future in which we have a sense of belonging to more than the Earth, to a larger area of of space. So people want the future, but but, but they're, they're not quite sure that they are ready to pay the pay the price for that in the ways in which we in which we relate to non-human animals. As Milligan said earlier, even intelligent and well-meaning people are locked into these existing notions that govern our social structures. Have we done enough to unlock them? I'm not sure I can really answer whether the movement could have done something differently. Marianne Sullivan again. I don't think that the problem, the fundamental problem that has stood in the way of progress here is that the movement hasn't tried enough clever things or the movement took the wrong approach. In fact, says Sullivan, the movement for animals has been creative, ambitious and driven. There are a lot of different people working on a lot of different ways of creating change. And I'm not sure I see that one of them should have been the way. I think it's been very productive that people have tried different things. I think the things that have been standing in the way of progress is not the failure of the movement. Others might disagree or perhaps blame the movement's inability to get more people involved rather than a philosophical or creative failure. What then might be the fundamental problem? If we limit that question to the law, we might have an answer in the creation of Martin's Act itself. For the last 200 years, animal activists have been using the template of welfareism, legal calls to reduce harm but not stop the sources of harm. In other words, the question has always centred on that word we parked at the beginning of this episode, unnecessary. All laws of the last two centuries have been expressions of this template, a tragic flaw that's hampered advocates' work for animals from the outset. That is, from a legal perspective, we've never even tried animal rights. Or the movement has always been told and accepted that the path to rights is through welfare. But has that worked? Now, this story of the animal movement and the way it has responded to animal suffering is as partial as is the legislation to protect certain animals, and not others, from which groups in society. Given this, is it folly to imagine that examining animal suffering from such a partial perspective will end animal suffering at the hands of humans? We need a new story, one that integrates social justice, food security and climate remediation within a recognition that our responsibility is not to decide what might be necessary or unnecessary, but just to stop inflicting any suffering on animals at all. This new story may in fact be a return to stories that we've forgotten in our minority-rich societies, where animals aren't considered property. Has everyone always thought like this? We consider that many indigenous legal nations in what is known as Canada now actually never conceptualize animals as property. That's Manisha Decker, 
Professor and Lansdowne Chair in Law at the University of Victoria, Canada. Her work, including her wonderful 2021 book, Animals as Legal Beings, Contesting Anthropocentric Legal Orders, explores how to use the law to relate differently to other animals. Her work engages with, but then does not romanticise, indigenous relationships to non-human beings. Right, so that's not to say, right, that there's completely harmonious relationships with the animals or that they, there wasn't any killing of animals, because we know that's not true either. However, animals had more rights than your chair or table. But at least legally, animals were conceptualized quite differently. And again, there are multiple uh, indigenous legal systems and uh, we don't want to you know, generalize across the board, but I think there is a generalization to be made based on existing scholarship from indigenous scholars that, yes, it is a different attitude toward animals. So what does this mean for ways in which the Canadian legal system, at least, has to change? If Canada is a multi-drill nation, then the legal actors who are kind of applying common law principles or civil law principles or legislative, you know, statutory inter- interpreting statutes coming out of provincial parliaments or federal parliaments um, in the Canadian political system need to grapple with the fact that there are other legal systems in the nation and as a whole that don't see animals just as property or just presume that they're just mere resources all the time. So I think this force, from my own sense of things, that there is an ascendant consciousness, at least in law schools, but I think also in the legal profession and among legal decision makers like judges, that Canadian law has to grapple more with Indigenous legal systems. This emerging consciousness echoes what Sullivan talked about earlier. Staying with Decker for a moment longer, Canada's dual or multiple judicial system could demonstrate how the rest of us can trouble what we think of as normal or set in stone when we recognise differences in culture. They can show there are so many ways to relate to non-human beings and our current system can change. As Decker says, I think there is a reciprocal impact that, no, I mean, can't just be business as usual with the kind of corporate way of, you know, the animal use industries, animal exploitation industries, if we really are going to be a multi-general system. Please listen to Decker's full interview about her book and the Canadian context. So, what other legal ideas are being explored for how we can transform the template of welfareism? One of this year's Tom Reagan Memorial Lectures was delivered by the Swiss legal scholar and theorist Charlotte Blattner, who offers one such concept, transitional justice. Transitional justice is a discrete field of academic inquiry and political practice. It addresses past wrongs, such as war, Uh, large-scale human rights violations to usher in a more peaceful and functioning society. Transitional justice emerged as a field within human rights work, but Blattner sees it offering a lot to animal advocacy. And I apply this lens to our relations with animals to see if it can help us acknowledge the vast atrocities that we have done and still do to other animals and move toward more just relationships with them. The time, suggests Blattner, is right for a wholly new approach, as it was 200 years ago. I actually believe that the Martins Act 200-year anniversary can be a great learning moment for us. Now, the enactment of the Martins Act was disruptive, in a sense even revolutionary and radical, like given the broader socioeconomic and political environment of that time. 
The 1820s saw the rise of the Industrial Re Revolution. We've seen technological advantage, uh, advances such as rail transport and the rise of the textile industry. Meanwhile, voting rights were scarce and elites ruled politics. We saw European colonialism get, began gaining ground in Africa and Asia, which resulted in wars as affected people opposed the exploitation and oppression. So the world was in a deeply transformative stage and preoccupied with matters relative to which concern for animals seemed trivial. That Richard Martin managed to bring about his law is scarcely imaginable. Except, of course, that we know now that these issues are not trivial, nor unrelated, which is, I think, Blattner's point for how transitional justice can be a revolutionary legal tool for animal advocates. Although it is not as if there has been no progress in the intervening 200 years. Now, you can imagine since, since the 1820s, apart from the technological advances that we made, of course, we've also made significant progress when it comes to protecting other animals. Most countries worldwide have enforced laws that protect animals. And almost all of them subscribe to the principle of unnecessary animal suffering, so animals should not suffer unnecessarily. In addition to administrative measures, some jurisdictions also hold people criminally responsible, even by imprisonment. And there are, there are even constitutional provisions that determine, for example, that protecting animals is a state objective or that require that animals be treated with compassion or that determine that animals have dignity. In recent years, we've also witnessed a range of reforms across civil and common law jurisdiction that determine once and for all, the animals are not objects, but indeed sentient beings. For example, in the UK, after its exit from the EU, animal sentience was re-established in law, which was considered a major victory for the animal organisations who campaigned for it. But, as Blattner says, Prompted in part by the Martins Act, we could argue that there is ongoing progress in law toward more comprehensively respecting non-human animals' interests. And so the question emerges, are we therefore at the finishing line of our societal pro progress to fully respecting animals' interests? Um, do we have a clear, reliable and just roadmap in hand um, that we can just implement and know this is going the right way? It's a rhetorical question, of course. And as Sparks, Sullivan and others have argued, are such laws enforced anyway? And what use is the recognition of sentience when built upon this template of welfareism rather than rights? We're back to that debatable term again, unnecessary animal suffering. Now, operating under the banner of animal protection acts, the laws of most states obfuscate this everyday violence that we rage against animals precisely through the principle of unnecessary animal suffering. So necessity, that is something that we define by human use alone. Little of what we actually do to animals is actually really necessary. We do it for profit. We do it for convenience. We do it for uh, out of a habit because of ignorance. There are many such factors, but it's not strictly necessary in that sense, um, at least in the sense that we usually use the term necessity in a legal context. That legal context is critical because it is within the law that such definitions stand or fall. And of course, the law, as I said earlier, is most of all a tool of human wants and needs. For these practices, the law actually provides a normative safeguard to secure anthropocentric interests on a systemic scale. 
These laws primarily serve us by legitimating or protecting our use of animals rather than actually protecting animals, which should be the mandate of animal law. The law has always been a carrier of other values since Richard Martin's time. Looking at the Martins Act, we saw that some of the earliest traces of legalised welfareism as imperialism. And we actually still practice this today. Jewish and Islamic communities are condemned for ritual slaughter. African Americans are punished for dogfighting. Native peoples are condemned for hunting seals or whales. By contrast, whatever majoritarian practices are, such as farming animals, slaughtering them or doing research with them, is considered customary, natural, familiar and necessary. So it is white, patriarchal, imperial domination that remains the fundamental issue and causes the most amount of suffering for animals worldwide. What's important to understand it that is that such practices often cause just as much suffering in animals, often in exponentially bigger numbers, but they're left unchecked by the law. Often they're also insulated by the law. And now looking at these dynamics from a bird's eye perspective, we could say that progress in animal law in the last 200 years, question mark, it's something that we have to ask ourselves, has the violence really stopped towards animals or is it indeed the fact that it shows no sign of slowing down? How would you answer that? Back to this concept of transitional justice as a path forward and a way to remedy the failures of the welfareist incremental template we've used for laws for the last two centuries. The argument here basically is that the political turn in animal ethics has not yet paid sufficient attention to the suggestion that potentially also between humans and animals, the past must first be acknowledged, relationships repaired and reconciliation inaugurated before just relations may take over the violent present. So we cannot just simply and quickly move toward just relations without actually addressing the past. In short, we need a transitional theory of interspecies justice. And that blueprint includes, I hope, projects such as this to keep bringing to people's attention the historical detail of the laws and actions that we followed. We cannot skip over what has happened to start afresh with a blank slate. That slate cannot be wiped clean so easily without addressing the hurt, pain, abuse and the domination that has gone before. As Blackness says... Looking at human-animal relations, we can envisage a similar departure from the status quo through transitional justice. The mechanism could be employed to acknowledge wrong done to animals, to prevent future violations of their interests, to assist reconciliation in interspecies community, or even to contribute to building a shared interspecies society. So imagine animals' resistance to what we do to them was being heard. Their screams, their shrieks, their fight, flight, freeze responses in slaughterhouses and research facilities, etc. And the community decided to um, build a truth commission or a conciliation commission. It's an ambitious, radical plan. A new imaginary of how we relate to animals that listens to their voices for what we have done to them. But if it's one that we can imagine... Perhaps we can build it too. We won't need only imagination, of course, but also perhaps... I won't say hope, because that opens up an abstract conversation that often results in policing the feelings of others. But I might say... I have to have some optimism just because I get up every day. That's Bernard Unti, who is the Principal Strategist in Communications for the Humane Society of the United States. 
and I'm involved to some degree or other in trying to make some things better for animals and to get other people to think about things. And so I have to believe that we can change minds and win people over. And I've seen plenty of that happen. And I've seen some decisive changes. Unsi also holds a PhD in American history and has been a historian of this movement. COVID and other obstacles got in our way of bringing Bernard into the conversation earlier, which is a shame as he's seen so much of how this movement has transformed over the last few decades. As a historian and a participant observer in the contemporary period, I've seen a few things disappear that used to be common, things that were cruel, things that killed animals needlessly, and now they're gone. There's no question that things are bad for wildlife and farm animals. The scale of destruction right now is pretty grim. And at the same time, there's never been more concern for their welfare. There's never been more advanced thinking, more nuanced thinking, more energy focused on the plight of animals at any point in human history. That's not going away. It is this energy, focus and effort that gives Unti optimism. But it is also, as he puts it, a personal responsibility to have confidence in one's work, a kind of faith. Obviously, the consequences are very bad for animals if people like me are wrong in our optimism. But it's always been important to me to carry these values with some confidence. I don't think I'm deceiving other people. In a sense, it's a faith principle with me that these are the right ideas and I'm confident that these right ideas will triumph. It's going to take a while. But one thing we have certainly had over the past two centuries is patience. And as Unti says, It's only 200 years. It seems like a lot, but it's really only 200 years. We can be downbeat about the ways that animals still suffer, how we have failed them, or we can be optimistic in the forces that have coalesced to make a paradigm shift in our treatment of animals. The growth of veganism, for example, from its historical roots through the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries to a growing community of over 1% of the world's population today is something to be optimistic about, I think. I often think of veganism and vegetarianism not simply as a lifestyle, but as a spirit. It's an ideological position that has more bite, more fight, more dynamism. And so there's a kind of ethic a driving dynamic passion to confront these cruelties that's more evident when there are more vegetarians and vegans active than when they're not. That's certainly my feeling, and that's why I'm pretty happy to see the organizations populating the field right now and to see that there's so much competition. As we've heard in this series, animal advocacy legislation emerged from individuals involved in social justice, religious freedom, political reform and agitation for individual rights. The same remains true today. However, the commitment to welfareism, the blind spots around class and identity that we saw, for example, in the ostracision of Louis Gompertz from the original SPCA, and the failure to engage women's leadership, are also reflected in our current situation. For many in working class and minoritised communities, Animal advocacy and that spirit of veganism Unti mentions are perceived to be the concerns of middle-class white people. And this is a tragic irony for several reasons. First, animal protection has a long tradition in South and East Asia and elsewhere outside of the Euro-American paradigm. And secondly, 
as contemporary black theorists and activists argue. Those who do not hold power in modern post-industrial societies, whether human or non-human, are caught within a web of intersecting oppressions, animalization, exploitation of their labour, pollution of their environment and food insecurity. For educator Christopher Sol Eubanks, the animal advocacy movement's failure to engage communities of colour remains a huge stumbling block to progress for humans and non-humans alike. There are people of colour in this space that are doing incredible work. Eubanks has set up his own organisation to make these connections. Apex Advocacy, uh, Apex is an acronym for Animal Protection Equality Intersectionality. And what I would like to do is to help people understand how massive systems of oppression not only impact humans, but it also impacts non-human animals. And I think there's a lot of overlap. I think a lot of the same systems of control put people in vulnerable positions in our society that also put non-human animals in vulnerable positions in our society. It's critical that people such as Eubanks lead to the animal movement if we are to properly understand the damage that's been done to both human and non-human animals and communities by dominant white patriarchal systems of society, if the movement is to be effective, as Eubanks says. And I think as a movement, we are going to continue to be limited if we don't have the global majority of the people represented in the movement. For Breeze Harper, feminist theorist and editor of the anthology Sister Vegan, the issue couldn't be clearer. The way I make the connections with this work is that, you know, animal rights isn't something that's a white thing. Granted, it started off with the mainstream talking about through a white-centric lens, but black people have our own rich history that is embedded in understanding that you can't really dismantle systemic racism, systemic sexism, without understanding speciesism's role within that entire paradigm that everyone thinks is normal. As we come to the end of this episode and the series, it's perhaps fitting to return to the person who coined that term that Breeze Harper uses, speciesism, for a final word on where we're going and what we need to do to get there. That, of course, is Richard Ryder, who has an idea, one he supported for decades now, not least through the creation of the Eurogroup for Animals in the European Parliament. As Ryder says, what we need is... A United Nations Convention on Animal Protection. Now, we've tried three or four times before. I've never been centrally involved. I've always been helping these movements. They've always run out of energy for one reason or another. And I just hope this time um, we're going to get it right and we're going to end up in a couple of years' time, hopefully, with a United Nations Convention on Animal Protection. People are open. We mustn't just think that it's just the British that are concerned now about animal welfare. Everybody... Uh, I think, in the world is concerned. It's wonderful to find how many people in India are concerned, how many people in the Far East are concerned. There's a lot of concern in China, for example, about animal welfare. That's wonderful, and that's to be tremendously welcomed. It should make the task of having United Nations, of creating a United Nations convention, that much easier. Transitional justice a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Non-Human Beings, a United Nations Convention on Animals, a fully intersectional, respectful, feminist, diverse movement, with activists who are creative, imaginative, hard-working and committed. These are all the things we can strive for in the moment. We can imagine a different future. We must imagine a different future. Indeed, that work has already begun. We do it 
because what we have here on this planet, sentient feeling life, may be the only example of such life in existence. And each individual being deserves their birthright for freedom to flourish. That concludes this audio documentary on the Bicentenary of the Martins Act. There are a lot of people to thank. Ryan Rhodes for early production work, the voiceover and theme music. Ben Hunt, Sharon Ekman, Eva Marie Lindahl, Denise Steffens and everyone else who contributed voiceover dramatisations which brought this story to life. Siobhan O'Sullivan and Josh Milburn of the Knowing Animals podcast, Joanne MacArthur and We Animals Media, Carolyn Bailey of AR Zone and Javinti for permissions to reuse parts of interviews recorded elsewhere and to the Culture and Animals Foundation for excerpts from their Tom Reagan lectures. Thanks to the Recording Animal Advocacy Oral History Project for lectures available to listen to free of charge through the Columbia University Oral History Archives. Thanks most of all to producer Martin Rowe and Mia MacDonald of the Culture and Animals Foundation for their vision that led to this production, to everyone who gave their time to be interviewed and to you for listening. Please share this educational tool and history of our movement far and wide and visit www.chart2050.org for updates in the future. Martin's Act at 200 is a project of the Culture and Animals Foundation. The Culture and Animals Foundation. Think. Create. Explore. Celebrate.